0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Kathy's Bold Move. Today you'll meet Chris. It's been 11 years since Chris went through her treatment for stage 3 breast cancer. Even though it's been quite a few years now, she still tells her story so well with such honesty and eloquence and I was caught off guard a few times by her very quick wit, so I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did, and without further ado, here is Chris. Welcome, Chris, to this episode of Cathy's Bald Move, and thank you for sharing your journey of breast cancer with us today. How are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling fine today. Breast cancer is a long time ago, and now we've got our other little challenges, haven't we?
0: Oh, yes, we do. But I think, considering everything that's going on, it's important for people to hear Stories such as yours, because it helps them to learn ways of navigating uncertain periods of time. So I feel that your story will bring some hope to other people who might be starting their journey. Yeah, definitely. So as always, um, I'd like to ask: So, what was going on in your life before you received your diagnosis?
1: I was working full time for Mitchell Shire Council. I was the manager of Libraries and Arts and Culture. Uh, It was a fairly large job, big portfolio, very busy and um, recreating with the family, just life as normal.
0: And you were about 59 when you actually got the the diagnosis. Now, were there any symptoms that you had prior to getting your diagnosis? No, I'd
1: been having mammograms and ultrasounds annually for a long time, mainly because I had what the... um, ultrasound technician described as a lumpy and bumpy chest so (laughs) you could never really tell from a mammogram whether or not there was anything there and I had had over the years too a few where they stick the needle in and take the fatty tissue you know the fat stuff out so um, there'd never been anything particularly wrong but they still kept me on check and there'd never been any um, history of breast cancer in the family but for some reason probably fortunately, they kept an annual check on me.
0: And when you say that you had lumpy and bumpy breasts, does that mean that you also couldn't do a self-check?
1: Oh, I could never tell whether there was anything there or not. No.
0: So when you did get that diagnosis, what were the initial feelings that that you did have?
1: (laughs) In hindsight, my, my advice to anybody is never have a mammogram on a Friday. Or an ultrasound, because you get the phone call that says you must make an appointment with your doctor as soon as possible, and then you've got a weekend to think about it. Ah, oh,
0: so you and have you know, whole time. What, and you
1: know what it means. So you know, Mondays and Tuesdays are a far better option. I would suggest yeah.
0: <laughs> that is good advice, actually.
1: <laughs> and so you're just told that you have to go back and have a check because I was on good terms with the doctor and the doctor's surgery. They had actually lined up. The surgeon that I'd had for something else previously for an appointment, I think on the Tuesday. So I went to the doctors on the Monday and I had an appointment with him on the Tuesday. I had had a melanoma, you see, some years beforehand. And when I saw him, he said, right, we'll have to do a biopsy on this. But he said, in my opinion, it is cancer.
0: So he said that straight out? He said you-
1: that to me. He said, I could be wrong, but... When he did my melanoma, he did two skin cancers on me and he said, I think that one will be fine and I think this one you will be coming back in and this will be the treatment that we will have to do. And he was right. So when he said, I think that as optimistic as we might like to be, it looks like it's cancer to me, um, I sort of knew. And though I had to wait till the Friday for him to ring me and tell me, yes, it was cancer, there was no great big surprise there because he I'd been For pretty warned. well wor- worded up that, you know, as much as you like to sort of at three o'clock in the morning when you're thinking about it and having a little cry, think it might not be any, it's, it's it'll be all right, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I really knew it wasn't. So.
0: Did it make it easier in a way because you did, uh, Nothing makes it easier. Yeah. So even though he had said, look, I think this is what it is, it's still, you still had all that worry. Oh,
1: yes, yes. You know. And up. then you still don't know what. It, what's going to be involved so but as as it happened he was going to India and do you remember there'd been the Mundai um, massacre in the hotel so he wasn't particularly keen to go to India but he was so he referred me to Jane O'Brien at the um, breast clinic at the Epworth and she would probably be about one of the best in the area so I saw her and she took me through that particular journey
0: yeah even though, like you said, he'd worded you up. If you could go back and give yourself advice on how to maybe manage those initial feelings, what would you say to yourself? Or do you feel it's something that it's just not, you just can't really just prepare can't. for? You just can't. Yeah.
1: And it goes, it goes for a long time where you can be perfectly fine. It's a bit like a grief journey, really. Uh, you can be perfectly fine, but I always reckon three o'clock in the morning was the time when, you know, that was when you were alone and it was, it was raw.
0: Did you always wake up at three o'clock in the morning? No,
1: but if you did, and you ask anybody who's sick or they're grieving or something, there is some time in the middle of the night when it hits them, you know, and it's the, it's the alone time. It's one of the great advantages now of the internet and emails and messenger and groups because... Uh, when my brother-in-law was dying of cancer in England, he would communicate with me in what was his three o'clock in the morning, but for me it was you know two o'clock in the afternoon. So he had someone to communicate with that wasn't in that twilight zone, and he wasn't interrupting them or you know. But that wasn't the case eleven years ago. Yeah, hard to believe, but it wasn't. You know, yeah. <laughs> that we didn't have quite as much um, contact with people as we do now.
0: That ease of communication. Hmm. So, or did you only tell John, your husband, that you were going back to the doctor, or did you only tell him after? No, you got he the knew. Diagnosis?
1: That was. I don't think I would have been able to keep that a secret for <laughs> that weekend. I didn't tell anybody else, but I, I told him because the last thing you want is people asking you, "Well, oh, how are you? What have you heard? When are you going to?" And they're all questions you don't have answers for. So it's just,
0: yeah. And So when, it, when you did feel comfortable telling people, how did you tell them that you were sick?
1: <laughs> well, I had to make a special journey to, to my best friend. I went down to see her early in the morning, so I spoke to her while she was still in bed with her, and her husband, made us both a cup of tea. And then I had to drive to see my daughter and to tell her face-to-face because you can only do it face-to-face. And then other people, I suppose, I just told. But after that, I refused to tell anybody. Because I was a senior manager at Mitchell Shire, and we're talking hundreds of people that know you and hundreds of people that would, you deal with and you talk to and things, I just got permission from the CEO and I said, I'd like to put a, a universal email round to the whole of the staff. And I did, and I said, I'm you know, currently having treatment for breast cancer, I do not wish to talk about it. I don't want this to be what defines yours and my relationship and conversations. Um, If you are interested in how I am and how I am progressing, I will write a blog and I gave them the information for that. Now, some people were outraged, absolutely outraged. They said, but that's so impersonal. We just want to ask. We just care. And I said, well, it's not about you. It's about me. And I can't tell which day or at what time somebody asking me that question is going to upset me so if you want to know read it in the blog and if I feel as if I want to talk to you about it I'll bring the subject up so that's what I did
0: and I think that's great you were taking control I it over was it. I
1: was very little I could take control of but I took control of that yeah and it made it easier for other people too because they just didn't have to wonder whether or not and how to ask me or you yeah. know yeah And there are some days, you know, and it could be half an hour apart, somebody asks asks you how you are and you could burst into tears. And other times you could just burst out laughing and say, oh, you've no idea what happened the other day, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's what happens. Your emotions are at a very
0: unpredictable, volatile level. So you did say that it was a very uncontrollable situation that you were in, but you did find... Creating the block was a way you could take a bit more control over your journey. So you kept working by the sounds of it. What other ways did your life change after you did get that diagnosis?
1: The first part of it, of course, is taken up with interviews with doctors, surgeons, and then the surgery, and then the recovery from surgery. And then you have the next meeting, which tells you, because that's when they can tell you what sort of cancer it was and what the next stage of the treatment is going to be. So the first month, six weeks, is is very busy with the actual doing of it. Um, so I had the surgery on Christmas Eve, and Jane, it was amazing. She came around on Christmas morning to check us all.
0: So that was your doctor. Yeah, she surgery. came to your house on Christmas. No, no, no. I
1: was in oh. hospital. Still. Oh, okay. I'd had surgery on Christmas <laughs> Eve. Oh, okay. <laughs> but we didn't do it on the kitchen table. <laughs> I mean, I know we're very self-sufficient in the country, but we're not that good. <laughs> so she came around Christmas morning, checked me out and discharged me. And that was, you know, that was that. So.
0: And were you so relieved to be able to go home Christmas Day? I, I
1: don't know. I had to go in on the 23rd because I had to have the, the nuclear medicine injections that... Go through to your lymph glands so that they know which bit of the lymph to take out, and you have to sit under a machine and they would plot it going through, and then they mark whichever node that bit of your body is going to.
0: Is that when do they give you the tattoos as well to see where they have to make the incision? No,
1: no, not so much that they do. Oh, they do for um, the nodes. They know when where they're doing for the actual breast cancer and of course that's a crucial thing because with if the node tells them that it's got to the that then it's a different ball game because it means it's in your lymph system so then you're into a different situation so it's always good to know that it hasn't spread if you like not 100% certain but it's an indication um, but it was it was lovely to leave the hospital my daughter and son-in-law came and picked me up and you, you feel as if you're sort of pretty... Oh, you know, we've done that, it's pretty good, you know. Then you realise that, you know, it's not that pretty good really at all.
0: Because <laughs> you've got another journey ahead. Yes,
1: and it? then you've got... The, because it was Christmas, we had to wait. I think it might have been between Christmas and New Year I went back to get the prognosis of what the surgery had actually produced. And it's funny because I, I went back and I read the early blog before you came. And um, it tells me what... What level of cancer I had, I'd st- totally forgotten. And it turns out I did have a level three. And level one's the best and level three's the worst. So I went, oh, I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure really at the time it lodged itself that much in my brain anyway. And so we had the meeting with the surgeon and the oncologist as to where to go with the treatment after that. And as I said, they cut you. They poison you and then they burn you.
0: Oh, at the radiation. Mm.
1: So if I was a witch I couldn't have done any better, really.
0: <laughs> um, now you said to me that you, you started your chemo after your sixtieth birthday. Mm-hmm. So Were you glad in a way that you actually got to celebrate your 60th Oh, I told them I wasn't having it before then. Oh, so you'd made that decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would have started it a week earlier, and we were going to the tennis on my birthday. I wasn't going to mess around with that. I said, I'll come the week after.
0: Do you remember who you watched at the tennis? Oh, no idea. (laughs) So you went to the tennis for your birthday, and then you started your chemo, Mm -hmm. and then you went to Bendigo for your radiation.
1: yes. But that was when I said that, when you have the chemo, um, the first session, my oncologist said to me I could have chemo number one or chemo number two. But the difference with chemo number two is it cost you $1,000 a pop. Chemo number one was on the health service. And I said, well, what would you recommend? And he said, if it wasn't for the cost, I would never put anybody in chemo number one because chemo two is so much more effective and it's got less side effects. Right. So fortunately Megan was at that appointment too and she said to John because John was vacillating, Oh, I don't know, you know, I'm spending all that money. Megan said, Don't be stupid. Of course you're gonna spend the money. Sell a piano, you know.
0: So, <laughs> oh, so, so just we, to fill you in, John's so, so we a said piano we would teacher. have we
1: would have um, chemo too.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it, it is now on the free list, so and the oncologist Ross said it will be on the free list soon, but it's not soon enough for you. And later on, I discovered that there was really quite a difference in that level of chemo. But when you for the first treatment, they give you lots of counselling. You know, they come and talk to you. And so the, this lovely young doctor or somebody came to talk to John and I, and... So we had to listen to all the things that we should and shouldn't do, you know, and I wasn't allowed to have a single alcoholic drink that night. Please don't, please don't, please don't. And don't do this and don't do it. And make sure you wash all of these things and do that. And don't have unprotected sex. Well, I thought was one of the best things John and I ever did that we didn't manage to fall around laughing at the very thought of it. (laughs) So as I said, I had just turned 60. It was 42 degrees at the time. This was the Black Saturday year. It was the horrendously hot weather. Um, I had just had surgery. I wouldn't say that I was feeling sort of particularly romantically inclined. <laughs> John was 68. I was 60. It was bloody hot. We were having chemotherapy, and I've recently had surgery there was no chance that we were going to have unprotected sex then or ever, really. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't laugh because we felt that she was it was a difficult job she was having to do and it wasn't going to be helped if we just sort of guffawed it in her face and said, how ridiculous, you know. Because <laughs> I'm sure she has difficult people that she has to say that to. Yeah. Not all men are as understanding as they should be.
0: Mm. Um, now you mentioned that you did have a, an interesting exchange with the nurse that did your pre-chemo blood tests.
1: The second time I was going for chemo treatment I had to go and have a blood test and this came after I'd spent oh, about a week helping out at the recovery centre and the refuge centres in Mitchellshire after the Black Saturday fires and turned out that the nurse who was doing the blood sample had been working there too. So we were comparing about how our normal jobs and just sitting down was quite a relief compared to what we had been going through and also how it sort of put even chemotherapy into a bit of um, perspective as to um, that, you know, theoretically my journey could be over within a period of time. Um, The the deaths and and the destruction and the trauma that the people involved in those fires would last a lot longer than that. So it it helped put things into a little bit of perspective. It was also quite nice to spend a whole day having chemotherapy that second time, sat down.
0: (laughs) So you must have been run off your feet when you were helping with the Black Saturday. Very much so. All right. Now, when you did go through your chemo, you did lose your hair. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? I forget now i think it's
1: 17 or 18 days i think or 17 to 21 days they tell you that your hair will fall out now it doesn't fall out for every cancer you know and it depends on the chemo and we're also talking 11 years ago even the treatment for breast cancer is very different now to what i went through you know so they they warned me that it would come out and if you scratched your head you'd get a handful of of hair in your hands so we made the decision that we would shave it off and it sounds terribly brave and I've got photographs that show me being terribly brave but I didn't feel terribly brave and I did need a fair amount of champagne to get me through the ordeal but I do have a very humorous photograph of me with a mohawk (laughs) briefly with a mohawk (laughs) just to remember it by and then because we chose to buy a quite expensive but human hair wig from a brilliant woman who makes wigs for people in um, situations. But then when it came with the instructions that you weren't allowed to cook in it, you couldn't sleep in it, and you couldn't do various other things, I was outraged. I thought, I'm spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on this wig, and I can't do any of those things. Oh, you know, what a waste. Until I started wearing it. And then I would wear it, and it, I chose to have the wig because... Because of my age, I don't look too good in a headscarf, and I didn't want people to know—not people that I worked with or knew—but in the supermarket, you know, you can spot the people with the, the the headscarf on, and you think, oh, they're not too well, you know. Yeah. So I didn't want—I didn't want glances of sympathy and pity. So I wanted this week. And by the time I would drive home and I'd pull the car into the driveway, I had that wig off my head before I'd even got out of the car. Because once it came down to it, God, it was good to take it off and have a good scratch of the <laughs>
0: <laughs> So did it make you,
1: your scalp itch? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, you still had to wear a, um, a little school hat underneath it. Um, but it's hot and itchy, and thinks so it was great to take it off, and so I would, was never a problem with cooking without with it on. I was more than happy to not have it on to cook <laughs> with, and I certainly wasn't going to wear it to go to bed. So, I'd been outraged about something
0: totally unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> no. oh. And then, it did uh, I assume if you wore it to bed, then the style wouldn't stay? Is oh it no, it was, was it, it was
1: pretty, indis- you know, and because you go to see this lady while you still have hair, she checks, matches it, the colour, the style and everything. So and at the end of my treatment, at the end of the whole thing, I was chatting to a man at work who worked in the gardens, Parks and Gardens Department. And he said, to, he, by that stage, I, we were all a bit more freed up about talking. And he said, look, it's good to see you looking so well, he said, but, you know, you were, you've been pretty lucky. And I said, oh, have I, George? He said, yeah. He said, my mum lost all her hair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> so then I pulled my wig off and I said, what about this? And he went, oh, oh, he said, i never thought, oh. Didn't realise. I said, "No, it was a good one, wasn't it?"
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very good quality wig. Now, when you were going through treatment and things were a bit more challenging, was there anything that did make you feel better? I know you had a family holiday that you were looking forward to mm. that was keeping you going.
1: There's always got to be a, a light at the end of the tunnel. I tell people this. Whatever they're going through, find something. It might be next week, it might be next month, it might need to be three months. Um, you've got to have something that you work towards and that light at the end of the tunnel. So we all went up to um, Port Douglas and we had a, um, a family holiday up there then. But it was, in hindsight, I still wasn't that well, <laughs> you know, energy wise and things, but it was still. And there's nothing quite like Port Douglas or somewhere else like that. I was also very fortunate in the, my job and my employment. I had enough sickly. I could have taken the whole time off. But it's not good for your mental health. So I was able to go into work when I felt like it. And this case it was, you know, when you felt up to it. And I didn't have to stand up and I didn't have to perform as such. If you were a, worked in a shop, if you were a teacher or something, you'd be in a very different situation. So I was able to pace it. And I'm not sure how effective I was, but I would have been more effective than if I'd have just been on sick leave. So I did do some work. I wouldn't say I was very industrious.
0: But it still helped during the Oh, it period. certainly helped. Take your mind off yeah. everything.
1: I mean, there were times during the cycle of the, of the chemo that you knew that you weren't going to be coming in. You know, sort of have it on a Tuesday, and by Friday I was, you know... You'd think that you'd you'd be sick from it by Wednesday or Thursday, but Friday was my my lowest day after chemo. And you also think when you first have it, yeah, oh, that wasn't too bad. I can cope with that. That's the thing. But, of course, it's a build-up of poison. So the next time it's worse, and the next time it's worse, and then the next time it's not too good.
0: The, so during that time... There were some things you said you didn't like people to say, because it was like they weren't really acknowledging what you were going through, like, "Don't worry, it'll be all right and And you said that sort of that made it worse if people say things like that. People say that all the time with sick people. Um, even
1: now, when I go for my annual checkup and you go for your annual checkup, and everyone closest to me knows that for about six weeks beforehand, you start getting a bit sort of um, anxious hmm, stressed. And so people say, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. You do worry, and you don't know that it's going to be fine. It's a trite thing to say, don't say it. Say, we understand, we'll be thinking about you. But don't just say, don't worry, it'll be fine, because you don't know if it's going to be fine. And my surgeon, Dr. Jane, said that there is a whole pile of research into that six weeks prior to those Annual checkups of the stress levels that people go through. And there's no way you can help it, but they understand that it's a very trying time. So, you know, I'm now 11 years since I had it. But it just not at the fact that I go for that annual checkup and there's a little bit of doubt and uncertainty and anxiety. And I, I get the, the result of that. And then I go, right, now we can have Christmas it's in November that I do that that checkup I go right you know but it's it's trying
0: yeah now what are the things that you think are good for people to do when you're going through your treatment or or things are a bit difficult well, I don't know whether they still do it, but in my day, <laughs> it's like when I
1: talk about, you know, when my childhood, when a loaf of bread was, you know, penny hate, <laughs> you could leave your back door open, that sort of thing. In when I was doing that, there was a programme called "Looking Good, Feeling Better," and I'm not much for one for makeup and jewellery and you know, tarting yourself up. So I thought oh, I won't bother doing that. But I was persuaded to go and do it. And who persuaded you to go? Somebody who'd done it, I think. And they said, there's a whole pile of free makeup, you know, and I thought, oh, well, you know. So that was quite interesting, and I went to do that, and there was this fabulous gay guy who ran the course for us who was very funny. And he was just perfect for the um, being able to relate to us all. But what got me the most about it was, and I did go with a friend, and all your friends could had to sit behind you, you know, they weren't... They they couldn't join in in this this workshop. Um, I would have been the oldest person there by at least 20 years to 30 years. So there was a lot of young women there whose journey was going to be a lot harder than mine because I was post-menopause. They were all premenopause, which is much more um, difficult for them because... Things don't rush through my body quite as fast as they do for the for the younger women, so there were women there in their thirties. Um, most of them um, had headscarves on or you know sort of a hat. Um, I was the only one with a lovely head of hair, and so he talked to us and talked to us about the importance of keeping your emotions going and always. He said always, always when you wake up in the morning, put lipstick on. He said, I don't care if you don't wear it, no one, just put it on. You need to, you need to feel good about yourself. Anyway, we the, the thing went on and we had warmed up a little bit, and then he said, Right, ladies, take your headgear off. So all of these women took off their scarves and their beanies and things, and I took my wig off, and they all went, Oh
0: So they didn't know They that-
1: didn't realise that it was a wig.
0: And they went, uh
1: oh. And then we had to each talk about how we had been coping with our chemo journey. And they were having terrible times, absolutely terrible times. But they'd all been on chemo one. I was on chemo two. They didn't know that there was such a thing as chemo two.
0: So they so hadn't been given that option? They hadn't
1: been given that option. Mm. And, I mean, one of them was a bank manager. I mean, she, you know... and. They were saying that they had actually had to be dragged to the hospital for their final treatments and things because they had been so sick with it. Now, I'd been reasonably, you know, I hadn't been great, but I hadn't been that bad. But then they also, and I said, well, part of this chemo too was the fact I was, it was suggested that I painted my fingernails black because there's a, a light penetration business with chemo therapy that it makes your skin a lot more ultraviolet sensitive and things, including your nails. Your nails can go sort of very brittle and things. So they said at the airport, we have no proof of it as yet, but we're trying to ascertain. But we think that if you paint your nails black, obviously prevent light to get into them, that they will not become as brittle and manky as the others. So they, they said that they thought I was just a really hip um, um, goth grandmother really <laughs> you know, so I, I got a lot more streak red than I really deserved on that occasion
0: So they thought you were a hip grandmother because you had black fingernails and hair So they thought that that was your own hair mm, mm.
1: I, that, I must have just sailed through the whole thing but mm. I, it did just strike home to me that people were having a much harder road than You know, mine was reasonably, you know, I wasn't enjoying it, but it made me feel that I had less to complain about, and particularly the age factor. They were very, very young to be having um, breast cancer, and it happens all the time.
0: Now, one of the things that you did say, and I suppose this sort of relates to, you know, you taking control by having the blog, um, was... You wanted people, you still wanted people to reach out, but you preferred if they sent a text or an email first, just Mm. in case you weren't feeling up for Mm. it.
1: Again, you see that when you were having your time at home, because you weren't very well, it would still be nice if people visited you if you felt like it. You know, sometimes when you have visitors and you think, oh, but you put a smile on and you, you know, you don't really want to do that when you're um, having treatment. Yeah, either you feel, feel like it or you don't feel like it. And there is the cycle of each of the treatments that there are some days when you can go about your normal business and then other days when you can't. And I Even reading and watching television was too much bother. I used to sit in the chair and just look outside at the trees and the birds and that was it, that was all I needed to do and wanted to do. Didn't need visitors then. Um, even if they came and were jolly and bright and worried I, I just wouldn't have been i wouldn't have been jolly and bright back
0: <laughs> yeah and you said as well the worst thing people can say is i didn't know what to do or say so i just kept quiet and mm-hmm. so that's the worst thing that they mm-hmm. can do they don't have to be fussing around but
1: some acknowledgement and i think that that's an that acknowledgement and that letting you know that they know and that they're thinking about you is extremely important and I tell people that this is very important too when somebody has died that when I know somebody who's lost somebody very close to them and especially when it's been at work I my comment to the person is do you want people to know because for them to actually have to tell people that, oh no, my mother just died, or my husband just died, is very, very painful. So I've always offered to do that, be that conduit to say, do you want people to know, so that you don't have to do that yourself. Now you then hope that the people would get back to them and say, oh look, I'm very sorry about your circumstances, but it saves the person in grief from having the embarrassment of saying that, and it is embarrassing, and it's very emotional for them. So, don't be afraid to get in touch with people, and just reach out gently and quietly. That you know you don't have to reply. And text messages are great, you know, because you can reply to those whenever you feel like it. And if you don't feel like it today, you can reply to them tomorrow, or you know, in two hours' time, or when you wake up. Whereas even a telephone call can be. Quite intrusive, yeah. but a text is. It may seem a bit distant, but then it gives you the position to contact back because you know that somebody is keen to make contact with you.
0: And it also gives the. It's like the balls in your court. Of you can you know that they're there, and you can reach out to mm. them when mm. you feel ready mm. to do so. But you know, some
1: people are very heartless. Very heartless. I had a friend, and she still calls me a friend can you believe it? I said, she said, is there anything can I, I can do? And I said, oh, yes, the ironing. And she said, you're not that sick. But <gasps> well, she was right. I wasn't. I just thought it would be good if she did the ironing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how rude, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: I thought, great, I might never need to do the ironing again. <laughs> she was a nurse, she knew. Uh, she said, <laughs> Oh,
0: so, okay. So she, she is your friend. And she, oh, yeah. She, yeah. she knew yeah. you were just trying to, Get I out mean, of ironing. It, it was worth, it was <laughs> worth a try. <laughs> it didn't work. Is there any other advice, just in general, that you feel that you can impart after what you've been through? It doesn't necessarily have to be to someone who's sick. It could just be anything that you've learnt through your journey.
1: Well, like with many things in life, one day at a time. And don't feel as if you have to be braver or... Busier or more active than you're capable of being, because it doesn't necessarily help in the long run. And I, and I do remember, because the the radiation is a six week affair, and that's five days a week for six weeks. And it starts off. You, the oh, this isn't too bad, but you know, again, as as you burn further and further, it it does deteriorate. And you go, and I was able to have that in Bendigo, which was a much better drive. And then go on to Mitchell to, to work afterwards, but it was—it's the tits and balls brigade, because all <laughs> the women are there having breast cancer, and all the men are there having their <laughs> their prostate cancer. <laughs> so the women are all dressed with the fact that they're naked, with their gown on the top, and the men are all dressed with their normal clothes on top, but no trousers on, with the gown around <laughs> the time. So we are—you're known as the tits and balls. Good.
0: So who made up that name? Did you make up that name? Oh, I,
1: don't know. I think it's fairly universal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are people who have radiation treatment for other things, but on the days that they, you know, or the times that I was called in, we were we were a clan on our own, you know. But I can remember I was driving back from Melbourne one day and I, I must have been into the market or something. And as I drove home, it dawned on me and I thought, Do you know, I couldn't have done that two months ago. Even though I thought I was better, I thought I was back to full strength. A couple of months later, I thought, no, I really wasn't because you don't realise how much weaker and how much tired and how much uh, it has taken out of you until bit by bit you get your energy and your strength back. And then I went, uh-oh. Well, that's good. <laughs> but so don't try and do everything all at once. And maybe again it, I was lucky because I was older, so I didn't feel the need to prove to people that I was invincible, and women are very notoriously bad at that, you know, we like to think that we are invincible and you know we can do everything and we can cope with this and we, you know we'd be marvelous about it. Um, it. don't try. Just do what you can. Push yourself a little bit. Don't be too complacent and don't be... But
0: and just do the ironing if you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you can con someone else into you doing it. You
1: can somebody else, that's fine. But, you know, um, or just don't do the ironing. <laughs> yeah, so.
0: so take it slowly. And I suppose it's like you said earlier, it's good to have things to work towards. So even though you might be feeling a bit crappy and and really depleted, you can think, well, I know in two months' time... I'll have a bit more energy and you could have steps to work towards. And, and you know, sort of
1: women who have been pregnant and people say, have you got baby brain? And you go, oh, before you get pregnant, you think, oh, I'm stupid, there's no such thing. Uh, you know, I'll never get baby brain. And then you go and make some incredible mistakes because, you know, whatever's going on in your body or you're just not sleeping and things, you foul upon various things. <laughs> I used to say that I was having a... Chemo seniors moment. So, the, the, the number of times you'd go to the shops, you'd leave your purse behind, you know. So, you can beat yourself up about that, or you can just be annoyed and go home and get your purse, you know. Or remember that when you set off on a, a journey, you know, even if it's only to the shops, just take the time to check that you've got everything that you need <laughs> with you because you don't necessarily always have that. And, of course, then and then. The oncologist would say to me, "So you know, because they put you on hormone drugs for five years after that, and some of those can have effect on your on your joints and your aches and things. You know, how is that going?" I said, "Well, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Really, you know, I'm five years older. I'm sixty-six now. I might have ached this much anyway. <laughs> so, You know, you can't tell really. You know, but when I was having the chemo and you go in on your daily treatment and they." They weigh you. And, again, you get treatments on a particular day of it, tend to be for breast cancer and another day for other cancers. So there was a lot of women in there having their chemotherapy and you had to admit some of them did not look well and some of them were skeletons, really. And on this particular day, I said, you didn't weigh me today. Uh, the nurse looked at me and she said, no, Pet." She said, you don't look as if you've lost any weight to me. <laughs> 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 Which, of course, I hadn't. But And I thought, it's the only time it's ever been a bonus to be, you know, sort of, um, not fat, but, you know, sort of, uh, compared to the other people in the room, I still had some cladding on me. Yeah. You know? So I thought, I will never complain Yeah. <laughs> <again." laughs> they never weighed me again. So I never, I obviously was not causing them any um concerns concerns about the fact that I was (laughs) fading away as I said some of them were not looking well
0: yeah well those are all the questions that I have so thank you so much Chris for sharing your story and I think that some of the advice that you've given especially going to the looking good feeling better I think as well there's a lot of really practical things that people can can take into consideration if they're going through treatment
1: they actually told us about sun care, you know, the sun business about going out in the sun. And did you know that if you put on a Factor 30 sunscreen in the morning, if you reapply later on in the day and you put Factor 30 on, it will actually only have the effect of Factor 15. Ah. Because your body has already absorbed what it can of whatever it was. So the point was, he was saying, you had to be very careful because you could keep put in on factor 30 thinking that you're never going to burn and we are a bit more prone to it because of what was happening is it really the best thing is to just keep covered up ah so i didn't know that before
0: that is it yeah i think that's good to know for everybody too
1: well unless he was lying to us of course maybe he just thought that we all should keep our bodies covered up for common decency <laughs>
0: <laughs> show some modesty <laughs> oh dear Oh, well, thank you again, Chris, for coming on the show and sharing your story. Any advice for before I do the big shave? Should I do a mohawk before I... Think you I... Do
1: the, I think you do the mohawk halfway through it. Yeah. Okay. Make, make a show of it. You okay. Because you'll look back on your mohawk fit, picture and uh, have a good laugh. You might not laugh so much at the time, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, the thing with, with photographs is they can be ultimately embarrassing at the moment, but in five years' time they're very funny. Okay, I'll so remember that. I did it for five years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not only did I really enjoy Chris's interview because she's such a great storyteller, but I think she provided lots of really practical advice that would be helpful for those at any stage of their cancer journey. I also think she really had a great approach throughout her treatment and... She only did what she could manage and she wasn't hard on herself when she was having one of her pre-senior chemo moments. So I think it's an important reminder that regardless of what you're going through, if you make a silly mistake, yeah, sure, you could beat yourself up or you could just move on and get on with things like Chris did. Or another thing you could do is see if you could con someone into doing your ironing. Now remember that this episode is based on the opinions of the guest and they shouldn't be taken on as medical advice. Nobody knows your body better than you do. And if you think something is not quite right, see your GP and don't stop until you get some answers. If you found this episode or any other episodes of Kathy's Bald Move helpful, tell your friends and family to have a listen and subscribe, or even better, leave a written review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps others to find the show. And that's it from me. Bye for now.